1: Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Murray-Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. What what am I
2: looking at?
3: Madness.
2: I'm not bragging. Cardi B does not at all know who I am. She didn't, like, invite me to her box. What happened? (laughs) It was just a weird thing. So big. I mean, I actually gasped. Mm -hmm. $500 million,
1: how many new shows could you have made? One
3: thing I have never done was look for approval.
1: The business of the art world feels so dramatic. Yeah, I mean, that's
0: very accurate. You know, for them, he's like a superstar.
3: Tell me what it feels like to be Black. Tell me what it feels like to be from South Central. Tell me what it feels like to be this. I thought, oh my God, I only know how to be me. Is that enough? No.
1: So on today's show, Grizz, I feel like you and I really go in two very different cultural directions. You speak with Mark Bradford, who's one of the most acclaimed American artists today. And uh, later on, I bring Anna Nicolaou into the studio. Uh, Anna is our U.S. media correspondent, and she tells me what it's like to cover Hollywood and the business of the entertainment industry.
0: But before we get into all that, Lila, um, from the look of your Instagram, um, you have been doing a lot of Armenian dancing. Can you, can you tell me about this? <laughs> <laughs> have I? <laughs> I've been following um, it very closely. Uh, yeah,
1: I went to Armenia uh, last week for an absolutely beautiful wedding. There were about 80 people who traveled from the U.S. Uh, for this wedding and then a lot of Armenians there. So it was a very traditional wedding. Hmm. And there was just like dancing every day. I felt like I danced more on this wedding than I have in at least six months. <laughs> it was amazing uh,
0: Were you loving it?
1: I was loving it I was living my best <laughs> life uh, It was like coordinated dancing Everybody knew how to Armenian dance I had to like learn how to contort my body in a certain way that I'm not used to And wow. now I know it's, I'm also Greek and, um, and it's not that different So I figured it out
0: So yeah, we should say you're half Armenian and half Greek I'm half Armenian and
1: half Greek. Um, This may come up again. (laughs) Um, I actually went to Armenia for the first time last year and I wrote about it for the FT. Yeah, it's a great Um, piece.
0: We should put it on our Twitter account, actually. It's really, it's a really beautiful piece.
1: It was a very moving experience. And so since I wrote that piece, I have been connected to a lot more Armenians. Um, and so the second time was like, it was really interesting. I went from being an outsider to a little bit more of an insider, understanding things a little bit better. And um, it's a, it's really an amazing place. Actually, I think you should go, Grizz.
0: <laughs> I would love to go. You know, at the same time that I was seeing all of your Instagram stories, another friend of mine was also in Armenia just on holiday who's not Armenian And so I was getting like all of this Armenian content on Instagram, um, which is really (laughs) piquing my interest. Um, It's on the list. I'm going to go.
1: Yeah. It's cheap from anywhere in Europe. So make it happen. Let me know. Do some dancing. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing uh, is I have one cultural recommendation uh, for those in New York. Before I left, I saw Slave Play, uh, which had a really buzzy Broadway debut. I don't know if you heard about it.
0: Yeah, I heard about Slave Play because it was off-Broadway, I think, last year um, and was very controversial and now is, uh, I guess, turned into this big cultural phenomenon, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was extremely provocative. And uh, I'll tell you the plot quickly. It's, it's about three interracial couples um, and they're at a therapy retreat uh, and it leads to three couples doing slave and slave master, like, sexual role play. Hmm. Which is meant to get to the root of uh, sort of the inherited trauma of slavery, honestly. Um, And yes, I did bring my mother for her (gasps) 70th birthday. And so we watched a lot of bondage scenes while sitting next to each other, which was um, not weird at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, um, the bigger question for every couple there was like, does the black partner have the space to be seen and heard, or are they endlessly sort of railroaded by the needs of the more entitled white partner? Um, and that was sort of the the bigger question that was being played out through the course of the play. Um, it was extremely moving. I'm still thinking about it. It makes you question a lot of assumptions. Um, I would really recommend it. Bring your mom. Let me know. <laughs>
0: well, it sounds incredible.
1: It was great. mm So, Grizz, what have you been up to? Uh, I know Freeze Week was last week, and that was probably pretty overwhelming. I'm assuming that that took over the past few weeks for you.
0: Yeah, it did take over the past few weeks. It's called Freeze Week because there are two art fairs, Freeze London and Freeze Masters. And it's it's basically the week where um, all the major exhibitions uh, of the year open in London, the art collectors come to town, the artists, people go and buy artworks and spend sort of millions of pounds on, on these works. It's, it's kind of an amazing sight, actually. Tate Modern, the gallery, the people on their acquisitions committee actually go shopping at Freeze. So that's where they kind of buy the new works that are going to be in their collection.
1: So what's your role in it? Are you attending
0: the events and and shopping for art or are you
1: (laughs) doing something else?
0: Uh, Lila, sorry to disappoint you. I am the person who's sitting in the (laughs) office receiving everybody's copy and kind of processing it. Um, It's very unglamorous. It's funny,
1: the way people talk about freeze, I've always thought of it like a satire, like a lot of wine in little cups and people (laughs) dressed in architectural clothing and it being very (laughs) sceney. Like the business of the art world feels so dramatic.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's very accurate. It's these larger than life characters. It's a lot of Botox. It's ripe for satire. Um, However, freeze week is also an exciting time um, if you're interested in art, because not only does the art world come to london but the artists come here as well um and last week i was really excited to meet the artist mark bradford who i interviewed for this episode his show was one of the kind of big opening shows of freeze week it was at this gallery called hauser and worth uh, which is one of the big sort of commercial galleries and it's a show called cerberus Mark Bradford's work is so stunning. It's so big. <laughs> it is very big. These are canvases which are kind of 10, 15 metres wide. I mean, he just works in a big scale and he makes sculptures, they're big, When he makes videos, they're big projections and they feel kind of ambitious and large. Um, he, he's. I mean, he's basically an abstract painter or he's called a painter, but these aren't paintings as we would kind of think of them. He's not sitting there with kind of oils on canvas. They're basically very sculptural they're kind of thick coming off the wall layers and layers and layers of paper and materials from the street and ropes and then he kind of sands them all down they're extremely kind of I mean don't you think they're extremely beautiful and yeah detailed we actually
1: posted a gallery of his art on our twitter at ft culture call if you want to take a look So I found that people in the art world were really excited to hear that Mark Bradford would be on the podcast when I told them, uh, but people outside of it didn't know him. And I'm curious about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that says more about the art world than it does about Mark Bradford. Hmm. Um, I mean, the art world is very insular. You can be super famous within it and you can also not be a household name and be not that recognizable outside of it. When we think of the artists who actually are household names, they're generally not the ones who are really doing cutting-edge, interesting stuff right now. there are people like Jeff Koons or Damien Hurst, people who have been famous for, you know, 20 years. Those are the ones that people have heard of. Um, but I do think Mark Bradford... I mean, Mark Bradford is so much more interesting than them. And he actually, (laughs) he hasn't had a big museum show in this country yet, which I think is part of the reason why he's not that well known. But this is an amazing chance to go and see his work. So I know
1: Mark Bradford also represented the US at the Venice Biennale in 2017. Mm. Is that right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I imagine that that holds a lot of weight.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really does. It's like, you know, the Venice Biennale is like the kind of Olympics for contemporary art each country has a national pavilion and they choose one artist to represent that country so wow. yeah i mean it's a huge honor um and it's also it's also a huge it's a huge responsibility and i think for mark bradford who's a black gay artist representing america in the trump era you know is no straightforward task and i think that's something that he really grappled with but you know,
1: in this era, someone with Mark's perspective is probably one of the most important ones for us to be hearing. So, honestly, I'm really glad he represented us, uh, and I can't wait to hear this interview. So, let's get into it.
0: Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: I first saw your paintings when I went to LA a few years ago, and the first thing that struck me, which I imagine is, is maybe similar for lots of people, is the scale. Why are you drawn to making such big works? What's that decision?
3: When you're making a larger work, I think there's much more of a relationship to the body. You really feel the scale of a larger work where the person can almost fall into it. And I like it. I think it's interesting to not be able to see the edges, if you're standing really close to it, you really can't see the edges. And that is kind of like being in a city a little bit.
0: I like that idea of falling into something. I mean, and when you say it's like being in a city, I mean, that is what it's like to look at your works. What what it feels that you're looking at sometimes, and this is the case with the really big work that's in this show in London, um, is that it's like you're looking at an aerial view of a city. Oh. In an abstracted way.
3: No, absolutely. It is like an aerial view. It's both... um, I'm I'm always interested in macro and micro. Macro, I think there's a kind of objective distance that can happen. And the micro, is it's very intimate and intense and in your face. That mid-range is, I think, the least interesting.
0: Mm. So first, I I noticed the scale. Second... My second question was... What, what am I looking at? What, what is the material here? <laughs> what are these layers? What are, what's this intricacy? Um,
3: <laughs> Madness. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's a, it's a, well, it's a kind of detail. It's a kind of, it's a mad detail.
3: So much of the material on the surfaces really come from either store-bought paper, but there's actually a lot more. You'll probably recognize a lot from the hardware store. There's rope from the hardware store. There's twine, caulking. Anything that has a use value, I tend to gravitate to. Sometimes I just wander around Home Depot for anything new.
0: I wonder if you can describe the process of making these works. That's I'm really interested to know what, what goes how? into that. Yeah, how?
3: Uh, the making was... A process of accumulation slowly of layers of paper and sanding and layers of paper and having to retrieve what it actually becomes an archaeological dig
0: so there's a kind of excavation going on of what the earlier layers
3: were so you realize that you're really excavating a memory Hmm. of something that you've built and so I might use a sander to excavate I might use water pressure hose to excavate I might use a chisel it just depends and it really just becomes um, a back and forth until it locks, until kind of a memory of that process locks on the surface.
0: And when you say it locks, do you always know when that moment is? Do you mean that's when the work is done or when it's working?
3: It's when it's done. Well, When it's working. Mm-hmm. Now, I always say it's like a relationship. You always know when it's over, but it <laughs> takes a bit of time to get out of it. It's the same thing. So you really just you know it's done, and then you kind of finish it up. But it locks, it it has enough of the memory. I'm always interested in memory, memory of surface, there's a process that went on, there's... I love excavation sites, I love building sites, I love archeological historical sites, Rome on top of Rome on top of Rome, you go to Athens, you can see that glass over the Acropolis, I love it.
0: So are you interested in, in layering as a metaphor the the idea of histories being buried and excavated.
3: I do think I use this way of working as a metaphor because if you almost listen to our language around governance, it really is this kind of layering and kind of building upon an idea and then tearing down the idea. And you say that in a
0: city you can really see that in the layers of um, the kind of fabric of the city.
3: You can see it in certain parts of the city, you can't see it in everything. I find that um, sort of the more it becomes middle class, it actually becomes more erased. It becomes much more. Um, there's a formula for the shops. There's a formula for the kind of text, and there's a. But as you move farther away from and more where there's a more hybrid cultures then it starts to become layer. I would say it's a little farther away from the gaze of surveillance, of kind mm. of the, the policing.
0: Mm. It's interesting because I think lots of your work, you do get this um, sense looking at it of, of layers of billboard, of kind of um, the weight of all of these layers of memories. Yeah. And then you see them kind of peeling mm-hmm. away and revealing what's behind.
3: Um, I mind paper. I like paper. I like paper's about potentiality isn't it when there's nothing on it and if there is something on it sort of you can never fully erase it you Mm. can never fully embrace the palimpsest and I really like that
0: there's a kind of ghost of a memory there it's always Mm. yeah
3: so advertising usually has to do with something that is clinging to the outside of the city it's kind of in our purview Mm. Either above our head, which kind of creates the desire for this—you really want this car, don't you? <laughs> or it's when you're walking into the sort of the, the the metro and you see smaller advertisements that are more intimate and closer to you.
0: For like a cat sitter, or
3: like a cat sitter, which I really love, <laughs> or termites or bed bugs, yeah, or... yeah. Because this type of advertising is also very. Um, regional it's very local and then it just goes away
0: so does it tell us something about the lives of the people who absolutely
3: that's what i think is the most interesting thing It, it tells the immediate story of that neighborhood of a need it's interesting though now you when you move more to the kind of middle class parts of the city you will see more um it's interesting you will see signs for um Um, you know personal trainers Pilates instructors it's amazing how Mm. that kind of advertising does change it goes from are you losing your house in 15 minutes to Pilates instructor which really begins to talk about class Mm. and race and and, and, and kind of red zoning and that happens in cities
0: can we go back to to the beginning so you were born in 61 is that Uh right Mm -hmm. in LA um so the first kind of 20 years of your life, you were in the city, is that right? Can you describe your upbringing in, in LA?
3: Single mom. She owned her own business, so that was great.
0: And this was in the hair salon? Mm-hmm.
3: Watching women being in power, and I didn't think that was any problem.
0: And she was always working? You she was help.
3: always working, and I was always helping. I grew up in a completely matriarchal system um, that was completely self-sustaining and I, my mother was the one that taught me to use a drill and she was also the one that taught me how to put highlights in the hair. <laughs> so it was the space of, of freedom, really.
0: At the atmosphere of the hair salon, how did that compare to, say, when you were a child going to school? What was the atmosphere of the school like in comparison to the community that your mom had built around the hair salon?
3: Hmm... I think the school kind of construct of the school or the social fabric of the school is pretty much probably based on any traditional society. And so, you know, the outsiders, there's the jocks, there's the good kids, the bad kids, and then there was me. I would, uh, sometimes I'd come to school with a Barbie doll and G.I. Joe. My mother never made a problem. I'd go to the store and i say, oh, mom, I think I want a Barbie doll. And she'd buy me a Barbie doll. I'd like to comb the hair. And I'd say, oh, I'd take a G.I. Joe truck. And I would just play with both of them. I'd put the Barbie <laughs> on the G.I. Joe. But when you go to school, then, then of course, the, the, in the 70s, this is really the 70s, mm-hmm. I suppose it would confuse gendered spaces. I, looking back, I, I think it must have been a little <laughs> much, probably. They kind of called me a sissy, but it was just a way of saying, you're a little queer, you're a little off. you are not exactly sure of your sexuality, but you're a little different.
0: Was that something to do with also being an artist? Could they see that you were a little bit different even then?
3: They could have, but, um, you, you know, oftentimes the idea of even being an artist is really a middle-class construct. I mean, there are um, uh, creative people in communities, working-class communities, even not even working-class communities, sort of communities of poverty who make things. If you were even thinking about going to university, the first things you would think about in that first generation is... Um, going to school to be a doctor or lawyer or something, you could make a living.
0: Mm. So you wouldn't become a professional artist, that wasn't...
3: No, 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 no. That was not even something that you even thought about.
0: So you didn't grow up thinking, I want to become a professional artist. No. But at some point, you must have started thinking, I I could be an artist. I mean, you are now. When did that thinking creep
3: in? I didn't go to art school until I was 30. I really... um, I, I had a life. I had a big life. I had a life where I paid bills for a really long time. I had ups and downs, and I mean, I know it sounds strange, but I thought, yeah, okay, I've traveled the world, and I've been working in the hair salon, and I want to do something else, and what is the something else? And I thought, well, maybe I will may be a teacher, or maybe I'll go to school to be a... getting blanks, but no, not being... Actually, to be honest with you, I thought, well, the only thing I seemed to be able to, like, pass without too many excuses to the professor's art classes. But... I was always making, I was making and designing and doing all, but I didn't associate the two. Mm. I just didn't associate the two. When I associated is when I got a scholarship to a university after going to what we call a community college. And then when I got on the university campus, I thought, huh, but then I still just thought, well, I'll make a... I'll just do this until yeah, this doesn't work and then I go back to the hair salon. I didn't I still didn't.
0: So this is when you were at California Institute oh, yeah, of the yeah. Arts. So funny? you were still thinking I might go back to the hair salon. Well I was going
3: back to the hair salon. I was one hundred percent sure I was going back right. to the hair salon. There was not, this was not. And I did go back to the hair salon.
0: So at what point did you not go back to the hair salon?
3: Oh, it was five years out of university with a, with a master's degree, yeah.
0: So this is, by by now you're in your mid-30s. hmm How did that feel to, I mean, that's a transition to, for now, art to be that making that you've always been doing. That is now your job.
3: So for me, a job pays the light bill. Mm-hmm. And I was perfectly fine in having jobs for the rest of my life to pay the light bill. Every Everyone has to pay the light bill. That's just life. We all have a hustle. So I never, so I was perfectly comfortable leaving Cal arts and um, going back and and, uh, cutting hair didn't bother me at all. And then when I uh, started to only full-time work in the studio, it was so seamless and so slow, I never really thought about it.
0: And when you say that that transition was kind of seamless and slow, is there a way that you would approach um, styling a woman's hair and creating... piece of work, is there a relationship between those two things in the making process?
3: No um, actually, I had to learn because when you're in service industry the best thing you can do is listen listen, the woman sits in your chair you need to listen (laughs) she will tell you what she likes, it's not about you (laughs) so whereas when I was sort of an artist I, I was the client and it was kind of oh, oh well, what do you want, Mark? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I had to kind of figure that one out because mm-hmm. I was so used to, well, what do you want? <laughs> you know, asking. I had to give myself permission. Mm. So that was a little different. But, um, yeah, slowly, slowly, slowly. Everything for me, slowly, slowly. Mm.
0: I think what I was interested in is whether there's a kind of relationship between that um, slow, careful process of s- styling hair and the layers upon layers upon layers of kind of making a work. And there's a kind of, there's an amount of time that's invested in each of those things. No, that's true. No,
3: that is true. Sort of when you're sort of when you're making an artwork, it's really just one layer upon layer upon layer. And at the end, you kind of comb it all together and you kind of hope that this is going to all work. And sometimes it doesn't. Right. I always say that I, I stood for 20 years behind a chair cutting hair and I'm standing for 20 years actually in a, standing in front of a painting. So it's really I've always stood on my feet. Mm. You have to have a lot of faith that it's all going to work out in the end and both that you've learned your craft and that you know it and you understand it and you understand the material and then you begin to work and then don't rush don't panic don't don't just cut the hair and then blow dry it don't cut and then blow dry because you're nervous I do use kind of the don't panic
0: (laughs) and the kind of trust in your vision trust in the sense that you know what you're doing
3: yeah, it seems like that's
0: what you're saying. To it, some is, extent. it is. Don't, and and, and, and the longer and, yeah, and the longer it. you've
3: been doing it, you you. That's why I really believe in working a craft. Whatever your craft is, you really have to do. This is interesting. I, my mom and I did remember this from her, and I, it rolls around in my head a lot. I'll see something, and I used to watch her in the ha- styling hair, and I would clearly see the whole thing fall apart. Oh, she'd be so relaxed about it, and I go, she'd go in the back to get a glass of water. I go, wow. What are you going to do? She says, Mark, you don't really know your craft until something falls apart, until you can fix it. And I was like, oh, well, I really don't know my craft. <laughs> <laughs> so I really remember that sometimes when I'm working on a, uh, working on a, a piece of work, and it falls apart. And I said, well, I've been doing this long enough to kind of be able to mm-hmm. put it back together, have that confidence, I don't know if it's confidence or faith or tenacity to keep working and kind of put mm-hmm. it back together.
0: So in, in the 90s, when you were studying art at CalArts, this was a time where people were saying, painting is dead, mm-hmm. it's all about conceptual art. Uh, we don't
3: paint anymore. So I got the painting is dead speech mm-hmm. in every class that I took. I thought, you know, if I naturally and organically move back into painting and find a material that makes sense, I will do it, but I'm not there yet. So just a lot of for me, undergrad was like a lot of just experimentation, which I felt I needed to do. Mm, to have the space to... I had never slowed down all of those enough ideas. Really, I had never slowed down enough since I was 11, really. I was always going, 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 going. So this is really the first time I gave myself a pause to really explore, find out where I was in my head space.
0: And and what did you find out when you had that pause?
3: Mm, interesting. Um, I was more... There, I was surprised with a lot of things. That, there was a lot of things I actually didn't agree with. I was actually more angry than I thought. Oops. <laughs> 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 Who knew, right? <laughs> yeah. So
0: you were more angry than you realized.
3: Yeah, just injustices and kind of things that I wasn't okay with and things that I'd always tried to avoid and cross the street with. And I started thinking, well, you know, that's actually not okay that my body doesn't belong to me. I mean, I think women could relate to that a lot more. Um, gender roles uh, the, the sort of um, racial biases. I kept, uh, yeah. I was. I thought, oh, I really do ha- actually have things to say about this stuff.
0: Mm. And so, you were suddenly feeling all of this and thinking about all of this. What do you then do with that?
3: That's right. What do you do with that? And and I didn't want to be a didactic or anything. And that's when I kind of started moving more to abstraction kind of dismantle things a little bit. By the time I got into grad school, I, even undergrad, I was really thrown by sometimes the over simplicity. Tell me what it feels like to be black. Tell me what it feels like to be from South Central. Tell me what it feels like to be this. Tell me, I thought, oh my God, I only know how to be me. Is that enough? No. Well, it's going to have to be mm. <laughs> until I decide what it feels like to be, I'm, what?
0: Well, there's a kind of burden of representation there. They're saying
3: you- They try. Yeah, they try to leave that UPS package at my door. And I just don't open the door <laughs> forget that. No. Those packages stack up, sorry, stack up at the door. You just leave them where they are. I just leave them where they are. Too big. <laughs> the packages are too big. I know what it feels like to be me. Mm. And I know what it feels like to have a, re- a relationship to, as a subject, to these large monoliths. I, I know that. But... And I'm gonna, it's going to take me a really long time to figure that out, probably my whole life.
0: When people think about abstract art, they don't often think about art that's informed by um, politics and mm. life lived on the ground.
3: Yes, yes I, well... They
0: think of something lofty and intellectual and...
3: Internalized removed and removed. Or, yeah. Yes, I'd probably say that the only thing I did was instead of turning my gaze inside, some internal... I just turned it out. I just turned it out and said, well, how would you abstract race? Or how would you abstract class? Or how would you abstract these things and move them around? And that, yeah, because that for me was an honest place to start. And um, all of the theories and all the deconstructive theories around it and all of the Mm -hmm. kind of um, feminist theories around it. And I thought, well, that'd be an interesting space to kind of um, animate a little bit.
0: I mean, a lot of those feminists were saying abstract expressionism is a white male macho arena, and you know, it's Jackson Pollock, it's de Kooning. We don't we don't do that anymore.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I'm not that. I'm not I'm not a white male. I'm not a macho cowboy. I'm not any of that. And I thought, oh, that might that be an interesting uh, space to go and unpack. Uh, one thing I've never done was look for approval. I, I lost that long ago probably about six or seven when it was very clear that's in my kind of social group they didn't approve i got over that a long time ago i thought oh this would be interesting this would be a space let's see if let's see if if we can have a conversation around this and see if people are comfortable with a a, a sort of a black body and, and inhabiting an abstract space not giving you Let's see if this will work. Sometimes I believe that people do want things more spelled out.
0: What people want, like, the racial message spelled out. People want you to make work about being a black man.
3: hmm And I do. I make work about my experiences, and I am black. What that, what that looks like, I don't think there is any real look To anything. I don't know what it looks like to be anything. Gendered, racial, there is no look. Four black artists in a room should have four different points of view.
0: So you represented the US at the Venice Biennale in uh, 2017. Mm -hmm. That task of representing a country, your country, how did you feel about that?
3: Well, um, I was naive for sure. I still thought that ah, was just a show, and it's kind of under the Obama administration that I did all the paperwork, and it was under the next administration that I became the uh, representing. So there was a lot of politi- politics, politics around it. I didn't know it was the Hunger Games. I really just didn't know. I didn't know. And me being kind of, I'm always kind of vulnerable anyway, and kind of I wear my life on my shoulder, and I kind of speak out of what I feel. It was a tendency to say, "Are you speaking for the government? Are you speaking against the government? Are you speaking as this?" Are you spe-? and really even before I made the work, I thought, "Oh, this is a bit much."
0: I want to talk a bit about the new works that I've just seen in the gallery space next door. I was struck by the the literal darkness <laughs> of them. Can you can you tell me about that?
3: Um, yeah, well, it. Uh... I would say that the work probably is darker and maybe psychologically reflective of a lot of maybe the dark times we're living in, maybe. I don't really feel, quote-unquote, dark inside of my soul or anything, but...
0: I mean, in your career, you have physically taken the material of the world outside and and put it into your work. So, the you know, the news stories, things about the border... Um, particularly living in the US does that stuff make its way onto the canvas
3: you know it's interesting in this one in this show I I use less of material that quote-unquote came from the outside world but psychologically it seems like the world kind of bled into a lot of the things in the work I don't know if it's psychologically it might be might be psychologically dark too um you name it you name it Sebris I guess um
0: So Sebris is the the many-headed dog, is that right? The multiplicity,
3: many-headed dog in Greek mythology, the guard of the gates of hell. In mine, it's sort of uh, really just a gatekeeper, a power broker, Mm. a border walker. Um, Ideas of of, of, of invasions and we must protect, and it turns everyone into little Sebrises, you know, everyone's kind of, like, protecting against... Mm. Yeah.
0: So you have this foundation in LA called Art and Practice. Mm-hmm. Could you describe what you do there, or what what it does, and why you set it up?
3: Yeah, Art and Practice is a it's a it's a it's a two arm organization. We ha- we have collaborations with museums to bring curated contemporary art, and we also have a long term collaboration with a foster youth provider that provides jobs housing for. Uh, foster youth who are transitioning out of the foster youth systems. And they are two buildings that are right next to each other and they're in the local community. Uh, Within myself, I, I started discovering contemporary ideas when I got to university and I realized that these ideas actually were um, quite remarkable and actually young people should have access in local communities and not have to get on a bus and go across town to see art and get on a bus to go to university to be enlightened. That was always the thing. You must leave your communities to be enlightened. You must go to um, economically better communities that have better ideas and therefore you will be... And I thought, no, these ideas should be on the way To the local store, the bodega, the mosque, and then then you can stop into the contemporary art uh, space and see contemporary art. If you make something part of a community, it feels like part of the community, and people don't feel threatened by it. And I was that young person who got on the school bus and went across town and looked at art and felt threatened and felt like it was not something that was part of my day-to-day. And went back across town in the school bus and went back to my community and made things. I think when you're middle class or upper class, going to museums are more a part of your Sunday afternoon and it's understood. So I just wanted to bring those ideas to the local community, that's it. I'm making room for the next young Mark Mm. to be able to walk to the store and go, huh, you know. Mark, thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: So, Grizz, I really loved that interview, Um, and I left that last moment feeling like there are a lot of, activist artist these days uh, but he seems like the real deal Mm. like fine art can be quite convoluted and it's so easy to feel like an outsider in that world Um, and he's really opening it up
0: yeah I mean he really he is the real deal he um, he's I mean he's completely embedded in in that community um, and not in a way that's ticking boxes or doing it for anyone else it's it's part of the work that he's making it's part of his his being an artist. So what was it like meeting Mark? Um, So the first thing is that he's incredibly tall. So you do feel tiny standing next to him. He's, I think he's almost seven foot. Uh, We we have a picture actually of us standing together in front of one of his incredibly beautiful works, um, which we will post on our Twitter account. Um, And he's incredibly kind of gentle and funny and kind of charming. We were walking through the office so kind of behind the gallery there's this backstage area where we did the interview and where all the people who work for hauser and worth kind of sit and where all the computers are and we were walking through and this kind of hush just descended over the office and you know for them he's like a superstar that was kind of quite touching to see to see the people who work at the gallery kind of responding to him so i know that um that you are a fan of his work and, uh, you know, we've both been kind of looking at it. Um, But having heard the interview, did you feel like your thoughts about it have changed?
1: It's funny, like, immediately when you start to understand the point of view of the person who creates something, um, the work holds that much more meaning, right? So Mm, I felt very interested to hear the way he sees his work. Um, I liked what he said about layering and excavating. Um, that, like, you're building upon an idea and then tearing it apart again and, and how that's a metaphor for so many things in our lives. Um, And, the, and that when you're—and that as an artist, as he starts pulling back and pulling back, it hits a point where it locks. I imagine him, like, tearing at his canvas and then being like, OK, it's locked. <laughs> <laughs> it's always hard to— talk about art and if you're not a- an art person <laughs> so I never know mm. whether I mean my instinct is to keep saying I don't know I don't know uh, it's funny and I think
0: that I don't know I don't know is also because there's something quite overwhelming and overpowering about his art because it's so big
1: yes what was it like to be in the room with it I have never seen it in real life
0: I mean I actually gasped when I when I walked into the one of the galleries at Hauser and Worth which has this really big work which is like you know 14 or 15 meters wide because it just is amazing to be in the presence of something that's that big um, and that's kind of made by hand. Like mm. It's quite hard to think of another thing that we that we encounter in life that's like that. And it's it's like it is breathtaking. Um, And I kind of wanted to laugh almost. What do you think? Why do you think you wanted to laugh? I guess because I was like, I was like, Just full of joy. I was like, this is (laughs) this beautiful object right in front of me and I'm the only person in the room like...
1: So one of the last things I recorded before I went away was a conversation with one of my busiest colleagues, Anna Nicolaou. And I have long suspected that she has one of the most interesting jobs here at the FT. She covers the business of big companies that are constantly shifting the landscape of mainstream culture. So places like Netflix and Hulu, major music labels, wars between
0: Taylor Swift and streaming platforms like Spotify. Um, It must be such an interesting time to do her job because... Uh, you know, Apple and Disney and these other players are coming into the streaming arena and it feels like it's it's the kind of it's a right at the forefront of how media and how kind of consumption is changing. On the day I met
1: her, she actually had a big story about the future of Netflix uh, about to come out and she was running around the office <laughs> trying to finalize everything. We also talked about a story that she published recently about Fortnite, which if you don't regularly interact with teenage boys, is an <laughs> online shooting game that has become a cultural phenomenon. I mean, it earns about $125 million a month, Um, kids are hooked. You know, it's become like a parenting nightmare. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's everywhere. Mm. So We'll
0: post that story on our Twitter because it's a really great story to read.
1: We will, and in the show notes. So I was really interested just to know about how her job brings her in contact with different aspects of pop culture and entertainment. Uh, And uh, yeah, I'm excited for you to hear. Anna Nicolaou, thank you for joining us on Culture Call.
2: Hi, Leila. Thanks for having me.
1: So I think that you have one of the coolest jobs at the FT. I don't know if you would agree.
2: Yes, I would say there's like a lot of interesting things I get to do and see. A lot of it is about Kind of the business aspect of culture, um, but in general, what I'm doing is covering big companies like Netflix and Disney and Spotify, the New York Times and BuzzFeed and basically running across all the industries in the entertainment and, and news media business. I'd love to know what the ongoing
1: themes are of the of the stories that you're producing.
2: The big theme right now and probably for the next year or so is the what people call streaming wars. <laughs> which is a term that I hate. I don't think I even use it. I think people place it into my stories. But what that means is that for the past several years, Netflix has kind of come in and, not taken over, but really shaken up the way TV and movies are both made, how we watch them, and all kinds of things like that. And kind of after years of watching Netflix get bigger and make more money and become stronger, the traditional media companies are finally... Fighting back. I mean, how that actually plays out is that we're seeing all these companies launching their own streaming services to f- rival Netflix. Um, so that's
1: Hulu. So that's HBO yeah, so this go. is Disney,
2: which owns Hulu now. And mm-hmm. a very complicated thing that we shouldn't even go into, <laughs> um, to be honest. Uh, so, yeah, the main, the main ones are Disney, Apple, and then in the spring we have Warner Media, which you might know as Time Warner, mm-hmm. which owns HBO which was all bought by AT&T, wow. which is a phone company. <laughs> and we also have NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast, which is another beloved cable company in Philadelphia. Um, so basically, yeah, I mean, there's it's it's kind of been this years in the making thing that it's all finally coming to a head. So it's actually a very busy time in this yeah business which is cool for me because there's just stories all the time right but you'll see so for example this week i was writing about a a weird offshoot of what's going on in media is that everyone is scrambling to try to build up a service that people will actually want to pay for right yeah so they're looking to i mean what are the most popular tv shows that people watch and apparently what we're finding out is that they're actually mostly old sitcoms (laughs) <laughs> like Friends. Like Friends, like yeah. The Office, like The Big Bang Theory, which I've never seen, so I can't comment on. Same. Uh, but, so, and, and yeah, so a, w- a weird thing that's happening, basically, is that they're all fighting for the streaming rights to these shows. And so we're seeing these bidding wars over shows that haven't even aired in decades. Right. But Netflix just recently won Seinfeld, and they're paying more than $500 million for it, the rights to it for five years. Um
1: That's a lot, which is
2: a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. To put that in perspective, so in 2015, which is not that long ago, Hulu was buying the rights to Seinfeld, and they paid about a fourth of that price for it. So, not to say that these shows aren't valuable; they obviously are. But just because of the nature of this competition right now, we're seeing prices being inflated like crazy for this like old catalog stuff.
1: I know this isn't you don't write about this as often, but what do you think it says about our culture that we are so interested in watching Friends and and Seinfeld?
2: I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the funny thing. It's like for five hundred million dollars, how many new shows could you have made? Mm -hmm. I think I think it really is kind of a testament to how hard it is to make a really big hit show. Yeah. When these shows first aired, TV was so Different, mm-hmm. Like, we didn't have as many options. Everyone watched Seinfeld. It felt like they call it peak TV, where we have, like, I, I'm pretty sure it's maybe double the amount of scripted original TV shows now than we did seven years ago. Wow. It's also, like, YouTube and all these other places where you can just, like, entertain yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's another reason why these kinds of shows have such a big, loyal following. And the one sense, everyone's saying, well, streaming is the future. But the future also seems to be nineteen nineties sitcoms. Right. So Right. So yeah, and also I have a large piece about what's next for Netflix. Again, they've haven't really had that much competition in this space. Yeah. Which has been very convenient for them is kind of directly as people were canceling their cable subscriptions, they were signing up for Netflix. Right. And now there's gonna be this new competition. So the piece is kind of posing the question of You know, where does Netflix go from here? What's the future of the company?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And?
2: And I don't actually answer that question, which is my favorite (laughs) thing to do in this kind of piece. I think for years, everyone's seen Netflix seem kind of invincible. um, Right. And able to kind of just come in and pay these enormous prices for movies. Um, A lot of people kind of use the terms like, fairy dust in terms of like their their economics because they seem to sort of be able to spend all this money but the stock market loves them right their stock price was going up this whole time so i think there's just kind of a moment of kind of reckoning with is netflix going to be kind of cut down to sides a bit right now yeah it might not right. maybe they'll just keep going who knows
1: okay so um part of your job is going to big events uh One of my favorite days on Instagram was the day after the Grammys, where I looked on my Instagram stories, and uh, I follow Cardi B's sister, uh, and I follow you, and one after the other, I saw Cardi B's sister. Hennessy was posting from a specific area of the Grammys, and then you, in the next frame, were posting from just about the same area of the Grammys, and I thought... Is Anna in Cardi B's family's box? And I asked you and you said, yes, I was.
2: <laughs> yes, you were. I don't want to sound, uh, I feel like I'm bragging. I'm not bragging. Cardi B does not at all know who I am. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know or care. Right. She didn't like invite me to her box. It's. It was just a weird thing. What happened? <laughs> um, so I went to the Grammy Awards. I mean, like the purpose for me as a journalist is that this is like the annual thing where everyone in the music industry goes and, Convenes and gets drunk at these parties and chats. Um,
1: They're more likely to tell you.
2: Yeah, I mean something. Yeah, I mean it's like any kind of journalism. It's like that's when like the scoops come out or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I mean just by like building sources and and everyone is in the same place, so it's just convenient. Yeah. Um, I cover Warner Music, so I know their executives. So they had invited me to just like kind of come hang out in their box if I wanted to during the show. So I did. The thing about the Grammys is like they're ki- like all award shows. I find are actually like pretty rough. I mean, you're in like right. the Staples Center, so it's not like it's not actually fancy. Right. So like the boxes are basically like where you want to be. There's food and there's drinks, and you can kind of like relax. And there's like couches. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I'll go like relax in the box for a bit. It's nine p.m. Whatever. Right and. Yeah, so Cardi B is an artist for Warner Music. She was performing, and she also won at least one award. There was, like, a big night for her, like, career. So I guess she just invited her whole family to come to the box. So I'm sitting in the box with, like, a few other journalists, Warner Music executives, Mm -hmm. who are what you would expect them to be like. Mm -hmm. And I look over, and I see this, like... Like, I, I didn't even know who she was. Unlike you, I didn't follow her on Instagram. <laughs> she looked too fancy to be a normal person. She was, like, wearing this fabulous dress. So finally I asked, and they were like, oh, that's Cardi's sister. And then I realized that the whole box was filled with Cardi B's family. Right. And they were fantastic. They were so nice. It was actually very cute because they were so excited and, like, screaming. And there were shots, like, every 10 minutes. When she won, they were, like, freaking out. And Hennessy was filming everything. It was it was a fun time. I, yeah, the nature of this job gets you into very weird situations. Right, they're not all glamorous. Also, like there's the time when I had to spend four days at a fortnight
1: competition. <laughs> right, <laughs> so in Queens, right? In Queens, yeah. Yeah, what would just very briefly? What was that like?
2: <laughs> um, it was very weird. It was very loud. Mm-hmm. They gave us earplugs. You know when like you can hear like the sounds of video games, but it, if it were like a million times louder, that's what it sounded like.
1: Wow. Oh, because there were all different yeah, games being like a, played no, at the same time? No, it was like
2: surround sound, video game sounds.
1: So what do you think is the appeal of Fortnite to, I would say, teenagers, but I mm. think there's, like, a broader appeal? I
2: think it's mostly teenagers. Okay. I mean, the audience was mostly, I would say, between 10 and 15-year-old boys. hmm It's funny because the, sh- the game itself was, is kind of cartoonish. Like, it's not really very violent, even though it's a shooting game. Right. Like... Yeah, it's all kind of silly in a way, like I'm kind of lame, like sort of innocent and childish in mm. a way. I think, I think one thing that's interesting about this job is I've always been interested in kind of like where pop culture comes from. And sometimes it comes, quote unquote, organically, where it's people, especially more and more with the internet at large, people can kind of find things that they actually like mm. and form these kind of niche communities around it. Fortnite is a kind of an extreme version of that, it seems. And then it gets bigger and bigger, and then you have big companies coming in and trying to make money off of it. But on the other side of it, there's like when pop culture is kind of enforced upon us by the big companies and just inevitably becomes part of what everyone's talking about. And I think my job kind of is instructive of how those forces interact a lot. Mm -hmm. And Fortnite, yeah, Fortnite was a very, very interesting example for me of... That other part of pop culture where it does seem to kind of happen on its own in a way. These boys just like this game, right? And start playing it all the time, and it's their version of TV. They literally like wake up and they'll watch other people playing Fortnite, right? While they're like eating their cereal. What surprised me the most, I would say, is how similar it is to YouTube culture, yeah. which I did not know. Cause I thought it was like, oh, video games are a different thing, but. Everyone there was pretty much just trying to get famous. Mm. Um, and then it's like, if you get famous enough, you don't have to play Fortnite anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it was interesting. It was very interesting. I wish it had been one day instead of four days. No one else there seemed to feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else was lapping it up, could not get enough.
1: Uh, I have one more question for you, which is... If you have any cultural hot takes, I would love to hear them. Basically, like, is there anything that you've been listening to or reading or watching that you really like, or you know?
2: I have so much Oh, where do I begin?
1: <laughs> that's a hard question. I really
2: like Lana Del Rey. Mm-hmm. I really like her new album. I think it's a masterpiece. What is it called? Oh, that's too explicit to say on
1: here. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> okay, let's we'll we'll cut that out. Yeah. Um, I think she's a genius. Uh, the big blind spot for me in my job is that. I watch a lot of movies and I listen to music, but I don't watch any TV. Mm.
1: Like,
2: so I don't know what any, like, any of these shows are when I'm writing about them.
1: What do you watch? I was just speaking with a, a 20-year-old. She told me about a show called Euphoria, which I had seen on, on HBO. She's like, there's something about it that's really resonant to Gen Z culture. The way that they portray high school feels very accurate. And mm. then I watched a couple episodes, and it is the most horrifying, <laughs> really traumatic, like, view of um, what it's like to be a teenager. I mean, it shows a lot of sexual assault mm-hmm. and drug abuse and body dysmorphia. And I thought things haven't got It's just like, OK, things haven't got better. They've got worse. Like, it, it sent me into a panic spiral really? about this generation. Yeah.
2: That's interesting because when I was in Toronto, I was having a meeting with sources who are older men who have teenage daughters and yeah. they were talking about how disturbing it was. Yeah. But I wasn't sure if like they were just being uptight <laughs> or like right. it actually is disturbing. So I guess it is disturbing.
1: But again, I'm like a twenty nine year old woman mm-hmm. who I like to think understands teen culture but I'm still I'm a step closer than those guys. Yeah. But I still found it disturbing. If you are a teenager listening and you want to be on Culture Call to tell us about euphoria, please email us at culturecall at Ft <laughs> I think that would be really fun. Yeah, I would, I would love that. Could,
2: I have plenty of questions. Uh,
1: Anna, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. This is a dream.
0: Cool. Well, I am totally with Anna on the new Lana Del Rey album. It's amazing. Um, its name, which you wouldn't say, is Norman Rockwell, and you should all go and listen to it. That's it for this week. If you're in London, I really recommend going to Mark Bradford's exhibition at Hauser & Wirth. It's on until the 21st of December. I really liked it. Um, You might like it too. And it's free.
1: Before we sign off, thank you for the listener feedback that's been coming in. Uh, Please do keep it coming. Hearing from you makes uh, our work here even more rewarding. Uh, We'd also love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So feel free to continue the conversation with us on Twitter at FTCultureCall. You can email the show at culturecall at ft.com. And that goes straight to Grizz and me.
0: If you like what you hear, it really helps the show if you leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And recommend us to your friends.
1: We'll both be back in two weeks' time, where I will be talking to one of the hottest chefs in New York. That's Danny Bowen of Mission Chinese.
0: We've been Lila Raptopolis and Griselda Murray-Brown.
1: We have a new producer on Culture Call, and that is the great Lena Prestwood. She definitely
0: didn't script that line. (laughs) I did, I did. (laughs) And our music is composed by Fatim.